All right, so um, first things first, I made a bit of a boo-boo. Last week, I told you, was the last week of Old School Rhythms, and it wasn't. Today is. All right, so my bad. For real, though, this is the final week of Old School Rhythms, this series we've been walking through for the last couple of months, looking all the way back to the Old Testament to see glimpses of what rhythms God gave to his people and what we can embrace as rhythms of our lives as well in order to live into our identities as God's people here and now. But first, a bad theology joke for the day. You guys ready? This is not mine. I have to give full credit to a professor I had when I was an undergrad. His name's Dr. Michael Middendorf. All right? I know, Sauron. Are you ready? I saw those eyebrows raise in curiosity. So here we go. Dr. Middendorf, whenever he was reading the list of the people groups occupying Canaan prior to Israel entering in, the same people groups you just heard Jerry read, he would say the Amalekites, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Miller Lights, and the Bud Lights. Listen, I warned you, it was a bad theology joke, all right? The old school rhythm that we're exploring today on the heels of all these people and this story of the 12 spies, which may or may not be familiar to you, is embracing a faith that trusts despite the odds, And so this passage, just to kind of preface it for you and sort of recap it, because we're going to be moving from what Jerry read in Numbers 13 to what we'll really be looking at in Numbers 14, this passage describes the rebellion of Israel rooted in fear. They're about to enter into this promised land. They've been wandering around the desert for 40 years. They've been complaining to Moses. They've been screwing up and rebelling left and right, day in and day out. They're tired, they're hungry, and they just basically want to get to this new home that God promised them. And so they get to the very limits of the borders of these peoples. And Moses sends in 12 spies. And he's like, go scope everything out for this is the land of your inheritance. This is what God promised to give you and come back and give us a word of encouragement, a word of hope so that we can claim victory in this land. And the 12 spies come back and they complain. They're huge. There's too many of them. There's no way we can defeat these. Why the heck would God drag us through the desert just to have us die? Why would he promise us something that seems so impossible? Why are these odds stacked against us when this should be a land flowing with milk and honey? What should we do? Bring out Joshua. Bring out Caleb. Because they're the ones who are like, yo, we can take this land and we're just going to throw rocks at them until they die. Classic Israel. They've been wandering for 40 years to enter this promised land. They send 12 spies for 40 days, but it's only Joshua and Caleb who return and say, this is what the Lord has promised to us. We just need to trust in that promise, and God will give us what he said that he would. The other 10 spies were terrified. They were staring down giants in occupied lands with established peoples, fortified communities, And you know, does anyone blame them? Sometimes they get a bad rap. They didn't trust. They didn't believe God's promises. But I mean, for real, how many of us would go into a land, see people twice our size with incredible military might and be like, yo, we got this, guys. Hey, let's do it. God said we could do it, so let's win. Probably none of us. So Joshua and Caleb, they get all the cred for good reason. Don't get me wrong. 
But the other spies are pretty relatable for good reason too. I mean, how would you feel? Seriously, how would you feel if you just spent 40 years literally walking and wandering through the wilderness, eating the same thing every morning and every night, getting all excited for this promised land, whatever it's going to end up looking like, and then this happens. People you trust and you know say, there is no way in H-E-double hockey sticks we're doing this. How would you feel? Or more specifically, how do you feel when situations arise in your life, days that you've been waiting for, that you've been excited about, come, and when they arrive, you're confronted by dismay or disappointment or fear or some type of roadblock? When the odds are stacked against you, what is your response? Do you double down and I just plow through it? Do you run? Do you avoid whatever that challenge is? Do you hide? Do you try to find another way around it? I mean, these are the questions that Israel was asking themselves. So just so you know that I also think about these things and I don't just like make them up because that's what preachers are supposed to do. Here are some situations where I don't like my odds and so therefore I'm going to avoid them at all costs. Skydiving. I will never skydive. The odds of that parachute not opening, not willing to take that chance. Similarly, bungee jumping. There is no way I'm jumping off a bridge with a glorified rubber band strapped to my legs. I do not trust the odds of my survival, okay? Rock climbing without a harness. You know, like you've seen those dudes who like climb up Yosemite in like 30 minutes and they're like, you know, the camera zooms all the way out and they look like a tiny little ant climbing up an entire rock face and they're just like hanging there on one hand being like, ah, you know, not me. Do not trust those odds. Same thing with hiking up any type of icy glacier like Mount Everest, standing on like a pathway, you know, that you can barely walk on and then you look down and it's like 25,000 feet that you could fall into like an icy crevasse. No thanks. I'm good. But here are some situations where I don't mind my odds, and so I'll take them on head, head first, headlong at all costs. Plumbing, drywall, electrical, or anything that you can Google or search on YouTube that starts with the letters DIY. So just a glimpse into how I confront things that seem like odds in my way. But let's get back to Numbers 14. All right, so we will be in Numbers 14, verses 1 to 10 today, if you want to pull out your Bible phone, whatever, and read alongside of us. Uh, But we're going to see how God's people dealt with the odds facing them. So Numbers 14, 1 to 4 says, so this is, mind you, right after the spies return, and they hear the report of the 10 versus the 2, Joshua and Caleb. Then all the congregation of Israel raised up a loud shout, and the people wept all night. Yeah, they're pretty stoked, huh? And the Israelites complained against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have only died in the land of Egypt, or that we would have died in the wilderness. That would have been better for us. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to die by the sword? 
our wives and our children will become spoils of war. They'll become enslaved. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? So they said to each other, let's choose a captain and go back to Egypt. This is not a faith that trusts despite the odds. This is a faith that loses or has lost trust in the face of overwhelming odds. This is a faith that has lost its ability to believe, or worse yet, to think that what was behind is better than what is not only now, but what is ahead. If I can summarize, this is what the congregation of Israel was saying. This was their preference. It's better that we were slaves. It's better that we would have died in slavery, in captivity. It's better that we would have died wandering around in the desert. Do any of those sound like options that you would gladly raise your hand and be like, yep, sign me up. That's how I want to go out. Not me. Underlying those stated preferences, this is what they were believing then. We will die by the sword. Our wives and children will become slaves. We are defeated before the battle begins, so let's voluntarily re-enslave ourselves. Is that a faith that trusts despite the odds? I don't think so. Their fear, their fear of the people that they saw in that land that God had promised them, their anxiety over why God would ever do something so stupid to bring them to these borders was their mistake. Forgetting to remember was their biggest mistake. Forgetting to remember was the biggest threat to their faith. You see, they had forgotten that God had already delivered them from death on numerous occasions, quite literally from slavery in Egypt, quite literally from the armies of Pharaoh chasing them down, quite literally from hunger and thirst in the wilderness by quite literally providing for them. They had forgotten so quickly one generation that God had proven himself to be reliable and trustworthy and faithful and as a deliverer to them. And so forgetting to remember is the biggest threat to our faith and our trust too. When we forget the deliverance and salvation of God on a daily basis, we are no different from Israel, slipping into a faith that fails to trust despite the odds. It's as if the exodus never happened, right? That's what the people were saying. It's as if they weren't enslaved for 400 plus years and that they weren't wandering through the desert. It's as if it never happened. It's as if God never delivered them, never led them out by his strong arm and mighty hand. It's as if it was something made up, a falsehood of their reality. When we forget the work of God through Christ on the cross, we forget to remember that God delivered you and delivers you from death daily through the death of the promised Son, the promised Messiah, Jesus Christ. And if we forget that, if we forget to remember the cross of Christ, it's as if our own exodus never happened. It's as if our own redemption was a myth and a lie. It's as if Christ 
did not die or rise at all. But if we remember, then we embrace the same faith of Joshua and Caleb, a faith that trusted despite the odds. Listen to what happens next in the story in Numbers 14, verses 5 to 10. So the congregation complains, making all kinds of stuff up, saying all kinds of crazy things. Then Moses and Aaron fell on their faces before the assembly of the congregation of the Israelites. Joshua, son of Nun, and Caleb, son of Jephunneh, who were among those who had spied out the land, tore their clothes in front of everyone and said to the entire congregation of the Israelites, the land that we went through at spies is a great land. It's an exceedingly good land. It is a land that flows with milk and honey. They stood up and said to their brothers and sisters, people who knew them from their time of birth until the young men that they were now, and they said, let us not rebel against the Lord. And do not fear the people of this land. For they're no more than bread to us. Their protection is removed from them. And the Lord is with us. Don't be afraid. But the whole congregation picked up rocks and threatened to stone them. Not the ending you'd prefer if you were Joshua and Caleb, right? This impassioned speech. And you're like, yeah, the Lord is with us. Let's go. And then you see people like just reaching down, you know, and they're like grabbing a rock. And they're like, okay, I'm going to throw this one at your face. What we can see here in part is that a faith that trusts despite the odds is a faith that isn't afraid to fall on its face before the Lord. And on the one hand, to fall on one's face in Hebrew culture was to be demonstrably angry. So when Moses and Aaron fell on their face before the people, they were showing them how upset they were at what they were saying. And they were saying, oh my gosh, I cannot believe that you are doing this. I cannot believe that your faith is faltering. I cannot believe that you would choose to go back to slavery or even death instead of receive this promise of God. And so they fell on their faces in anger. Now, we might not be angry with one another, but have you ever been angry with God? It's okay if you have. I have. I mean, do you want me to do one of those, like, raise your hand if you've been angry with God? Would you guys do it? I'm not going to make you. Don't worry. But I'm sure each of us has been angry with God at some point in our lives. A faith that trusts despite the odds welcomes that feeling. God welcomes the feeling of anger, and he invites you to fall on your face angry with him and say, God, why did this happen? How did you let this occur? Why aren't you doing something? Where are you? You promised to be there, and you're not. God welcomes that. He welcomes it because he flips our anger, whether justified or unjustified, and directs it towards the face of his son. The Lord's anger fell upon the face of his one and only son so that you could see the promise of his peace and his mercy, his forgiveness and his faithfulness. And so to fall on one's face is a sign of embracing a faith that trusts against all odds and despite the odds. It can be one in a posture of anger, but to fall on one's faith on fa- to fall on one's face is also to humble 
yourself in faith, right? To bow down before someone is a sign of respect. It's a sign of honor and humility. And so when we fall on our faces before that cross of Christ where God's anger rained down upon his son, we catch a glimpse into the promised land of God where we see all of our enemies defeated, all of those that we were anxious about, all of those that we thought could never be overcome, sin and death and the power of the evil one. We see them defeated. All the times we were angry about things not going right in our life, defeated. All the hopelessness, defeated. All the frustration and lament, defeated. It's where we hear the same message uttered by Joshua and Caleb, uttered from the mouth of our Savior. Don't be afraid. The cross gives us a glimpse into the promised land of God, the one that's not yet here. The promised land of Israel for you and I the new heaven and the new earth, the new creation where anger and sadness, disappointment and anxiety and fear will simply cease. They will no longer exist. And in the words of Joshua and Caleb, what do they encourage us to do as we see that promised land in the eyes of our faith, our hearts and our minds? Don't rebel against the Lord. Embrace the promises of God for the Lord is with us. The Lord is with us. Now in our text, I think we have a tendency sometimes to see the promised land of Israel and apply it a little bit too literally to our own lives, right? There are movements that say, hey, we need to uh, maintain the borders of Canaan, the land of Israel geographically, because this is where God chose to be. And yet in Christ, we have to see a very important distinction that was made between the promise of land, geography, terrain, etc., borders and boundaries, and the promised land. Because the promise of land given to Israel that we just read about, Canaan, with all the people groups and all the valleys and the hills and the rivers and everything, Dead Sea, everything in there, is different from the promised land of God's presence in, with, and around us under the rule and reign of Christ Jesus. So don't hear me say this today, okay? If there's one thing, you can forget literally everything I said today, but don't repeat this and then say I said this because I didn't say this. I will not promise you that you are going to be able to slay all the giants in your life. I'm not going to promise you that you can conquer any enemy in your life. I'm not going to promise you that you are in a land flowing with milk and honey and life is good and you will not struggle. I cannot and I refuse to promise you that. But what I can promise you is the same thing that Israel received, that they were going to inherit a land of promise that would be their resting place. a very important theme in the Old Testament that God was going to gift his people a place of rest. It just happened to be the country of Canaan that would be renamed Israel. He was going to gift his people rest from journeying and wandering. He was going to eventually give his people rest from warfare. He was going to give them a place to simply rest in his presence. And when Christ comes along, he refocuses our attention not to geography or borders or boundaries or control or empire building or anything like that, but instead he points our gaze to himself. Or as St. Augustine says, our hearts are restless, just like the wandering restless hearts and minds of Israel, until we find our rest in God. 
God is your resting place from all oppression, from all opposition, and all the odds in your life. This is why Jesus became a human being. This is why Jesus was born and at some point was literally the same age as Genesis, seven months old. This is why Jesus underwent rites and rituals of God's people, Israel, to show us that he was one of us, that he was just like you, that he came to this planet to become a human being, the chosen one of Israel, in order to lead you in a new exodus, not to some place, but into his presence an existence of eternal rest with God. And he does this really cool thing in John chapter 14. Did you catch that? We read from Numbers chapter 14, and now we're in John chapter 14. Coincidence? I don't think so, man. I don't think so. Well, actually, it would be a coincidence, because at the time of the writing of the Hebrew and Greek Bibles, they didn't have chapters and verses. So we got lucky, all right? We got lucky because in John chapter 14, Jesus speaks about how he's leading us as his people in himself to a place of eternal presence with his Father. And so that may be convenient, but it wasn't intentional. Let me share a few things that I think were not just convenient, but also intentional. All right? Joshua led the people of Israel into the promised land, and Jesus leads us into the promised land of his eternal kingdom. Why is that intentional? Did you know Joshua and Jesus are the same name? It's literally the same name. The Germans messed it up. They changed all the spelling around when they translated it into English or into German and then into English. Joshua and Jesus are the same name. Joshua and Jesus mean the same thing. God is salvation. And so Joshua, way back then in Israel's history, is a type of Jesus pointing us to the one who would come, Jesus of Nazareth, son of God and son of man, the true fulfillment of the promise to enter into the promised land and presence of God for all eternity. And so listen to what Jesus said in John chapter 14. Don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house, there are many rooms. If it wasn't true, would I have told you that I'm going ahead of you to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, bet I'm coming back to gather you and bring you with me to take you to myself so that where I am, where my presence is, you may also be. And you know the way to the place where I'm going. But Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. How are we supposed to know the way? And Jesus said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if you know me, you know my Father. From now on, you know him and you've seen him. Don't let your hearts be troubled, but believe in the God who was with Israel back then in the times of Joshua and Caleb, who is even now, but the one who is to come, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Don't let your hearts be troubled, but trust despite any and all odds in your life, not in your faith or your ability to stay in the faith or remain faithful to God, but in the faithful one, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of Moses, Joshua, and Caleb, the God of Israel, the God of Christ Jesus. Don't let your hearts be troubled in the face of any and all odds because Christ was faithful unto death to defeat them on your behalf. Don't let your hearts be troubled 
in the face of any challenge of this life, but trust in the faithfulness of God's promises. Just like he asked Israel, trust in the fact that I promised to bring you to a land flowing with milk and honey, but also trust in the promises like the ones we witnessed this morning in the waters of baptism, where Genesis received a promise that God would never leave her. He would never forsake her. He would chase her down forever. Baptism is that time and place where the Holy Spirit directs your faith and calls your attention when odds are presence. I don't know if you've ever thought about this. When God calls you his child and he marks you with the sign of his cross, that is a promise he makes to be with you forever. And even if you wander around, even if you complain like Israel, even if you say, it'd be better for me to go back to my old life, it'd be better for me to return to the wilderness and wandering. You know what? Life was maybe more fun before God. Even despite all that wandering and walking away, God's like, hey, I'm going to be here waiting for you. More than that, I'm going to follow you and I'm going to chase you down. And the day when you wake up and say, you know what? We might as well just die. I'm going to remind you of my promises that I died for you. I marked you as mine and you have always been my child and I've never let you go. So just return to me and to my presence and it will be filled with joy and peace, forgiveness and healing. This is the presence of our God promised to us, not affixed to a piece of property, but nailed to the cross. This is our old school rhythm to embrace a faith that trusts despite all odds. That's nothing more than to rest in the promises and faithfulness of God. Once again, we are not recipients of a promised geographical land, but we are promised the land of Christ's presence in us, with us, before us, behind us, above and below us. And so may the presence of Christ strengthen us in the face of any and all odds in our lives until that day comes when he will return to take us to that place he promised to his disciples and promised to us, a place filled with many rooms, never-ending rooms, where not only he dwells, but his Father dwells as well, so that we might rest in his eternal kingdom, the new heaven and the new earth. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, and until that day comes, give us the strength to trust in you, the person and work, the one who died and rose, Jesus, Joshua, salvation. Amen.